so here we are into part three of my attempt to cover the entirety of Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations. We cover parts 256 to 352, I do believe. And it, this is, he spends a large quantity of time analyzing the concept of when I think of, you know, a color, how do I know that that's the color you're feeling? When I think of pain, you know, how is it that, you know, when someone claims they feel pain, how am I to know that it's the same pain and vice versa? And, uh, you know, that, that's sort of the experience that I'm experiencing. Is it, you know, is it the same experience? And, yeah, as it goes into a lot of detail, um, really good section. Honestly, I think this whole book is amazing so far. It's like the, this is the second time I've read it, second and a half time I've read it. And each time I read it, I'm like, man, I, I feel like I've gotten maybe more intelligent because I'm like, wow, that's not what I got out of it the last time. But, hey, if you're still here on this journey with me, um, hope it's, it's, you know, again, I do at least a decent enough job for you to be able to understand it and find it worthwhile. Um, cause it's definitely, uh, you know, one of the top 50 books everyone should read just, just completely <laughs> expands the way that you perceive reality and then the way you even look at it. So here we go. Now, what about the language which describes my inner experiences, which only I myself can understand? How do I use words to stand for my sensations, as we ordinarily do? Then are my words for sensations tied up with my natural expression of sensation? In that case, my language is not a private one. Someone else might understand it as well as I, but suppose I didn't have any natural expression for the sensation, but only had this, but only had the sensation, and now I simply associate names with sensations and use these names in descriptions. What would it be like if human beings showed no outward signs of pain, did not groan, grimace, etc.? Then it would be impossible to teach a child to use the word toothache. Well, let's assume the child is a genius and invents it, or itself invents a name for the sensation. But then, of course, he couldn't make himself understood when he used the word, so does he understand the name? Without being able to explain its meaning to anyone? But what does it mean to say that he has named his pain? How has he done this? How has he done this naming of pain? And whatever he did, what was its purpose? When one says he gave a name to his sensation, one forgets that a great deal of stage setting in the language is presupposed if the mere act of naming is to make sense. And when we speak of someone's having given a name to pain, what is presupposed is the existence of the grammar of the word pain. It shows the post where the new word is stationed. Let us imagine the following case. I want to keep a diary about the reoccurrence of certain situ or sensation. To this end, I associate it with the sign S and write the sign in a calendar for every day on which I have the sensation. I will remark, first of all, that a definition of the sign cannot be formulated, but I still can give myself uh, a kind of ostensive definition. How? Can I point at the sensation? Not in the ordinary sense. But I speak or write the sign down, and at the same time, I concentrate my attention on the sensation. And so, as if it were, point uh, to it innerly. But what is the ceremony for? For that is all it seems to be. A definition surely serves to establish the meaning of a sign. Well, that is done precisely by the concentration of my attention. For in this way, I impress on myself the connection between sign and sensation. But I impress it on myself can only mean... 
This process brings it about that I can remember the connection right in the future. But in the present case, I have no criterion for, of correctness. One would like to say wherever is going to seem right to me is right. And that only means that here we can't talk about right. Are the rules of the private language impressions of rules? The balance on which impressions are weighted is not the impression of a balance. Well, I believe that this is the sensation S again. Perhaps you believe that you believe it. Then did the man who made the entry in the calendar make a note of nothing whatsoever? Don't consider it a matter of course that a person is making a note of something when he makes a mark, say in a calendar. For a note has a function, and this S so far has none. One could talk to oneself if a person spreads, or if a person speaks when no one is present, does that mean he is speaking to himself? What reason have we for calling S the sign for sensations? For sensation is a word or a common language, not of one intelligible to me alone. So the use of this word stands in need of a justification which everybody understands. And it would not help either to say that it need not be a sensation. That when he writes S, he has something, and that is all that can be said. Has and something also belong to our common language. So in the end, when one is doing philosophy, one gets to the point where one would like to uh, just to admit an inarticulate sound. But such a sound is an expression only as it occurs in a particular language game, which should now be described. It might be said, if you have given yourself a private definition of a word, then you must inwardly undertake to use the word in such and such a way. And how do you undertake this? Is it to be assumed that you invent the technique of using the word or that you found it ready-made? But I can inwardly undertake this or call, undertake to call this pain in the future blank, but it is certain that you have undertaken it. Are you sure that it was enough for this purpose to concentrate your attention on your feeling? A weird question. Once you know what the word stands for, you understand it you know its whole use. Let us imagine a table, something like a dictionary, that exists only in our imagination. A dictionary can be used to justify the translation of a word X by a word Y, but are we also to call it a justification if such a table is to be looked up only in the imagination? Well, yes, then it is a subjective justification. But justification consists in appealing to something dependent. But surely I can appeal from one memory to another. For example, I don't know if I have remembered the time of departure of a train, right? And to check it, I call my mind how a page of the timetable looked. Isn't it the same here? No, for this process has got to produce a memory, which is actually correct. If the mental image of the timetable could not itself be tested for correctness, how could it confirm the correctness of the first memory? As if someone were to buy several copies of the morning newspaper to assure himself of what it said was true. Looking up at a table in the imagination is no more looking up a table than the image of a result of an imagined experiment is the result of an experiment. I can look at the clock to see what time it is, but I can also look at the dial of a clock in order to guess what time it is or, for the same purpose, move the hand of a clock till its position strikes me as right. So the look of a clock may serve to determine the time in more 
than one way, looking at the clock in imagination. Suppose I wanted to justify the choice of dimensions for a bridge which I imagine to be building by making loading tests on the material of the bridge in my imagination. This would, of course, be to, be to imagine what is called justifying the choice of dimensions for a bridge. But should we also call it justifying an imagined choice of dimensions? Why can't my right hand give my left hand m money? My right hand can put it into my left hand. My right hand can write a deed of gift and my left hand a receipt, but the further practical consequences would not be those of a gift. When the left hand has taken the money from the right, etc., we shall ask, well, and what of it? And the same could be asked if a person had given, him, uh, given himself a private definition of a word, I mean, if he has said the word to himself and at the same time has directed his attention to a sensation. Let us remember that there are certain criteria in a man's behavior for the fact that he does not understand a word, that it means nothing to him, that he can do nothing with it, and criteria for his thinking he understands, attaching some meaning to the word, but not the right one. And lastly, criteria for his understanding the word right. In second case, one might speak of a subjective understanding and sounds which, one, uh, which no one else understands, but which I appear to understand, might be called a private language. Let us now imagine a use for the entry of the sign S in my diary. I discover that whenever I have a particular sensation, a manometer shows that my blood pressure rises. So I shall be able to say that my blood pressure is rising without using any apparatus. This is a useful result. And now it seems quite indifferent whether I have recognized the sensation right or not. Let us suppose I regularly identify it wrong. It does not matter in the least. And that alone shows that the hypothesis and I make a mistake is mere show. We, as it were turned, knob, which looked as if it could be used to turn on some part of the machine. But it was a mere ornament not connected with the mechanism at all. And what is our reasoning, or reason for calling S the name of the sensation here? Perhaps the kind of way this sign is employed in the language game, and why a particular sensation that is this, the same one every time? Well, aren't we supposing that we write S every time? Imagine a person whose memory could not retain what the word pain meant said he constantly called different things by the name, but nevertheless used the word in a way fitting in with the usual uh, symptoms and prepositions, uh, presuppositions of pain. In short, he uses it as we all do. Here, I should like to say, a wheel that can be turned, though nothing else moves with it, is not part of the mechanism. The essential thing about private experience is really not that each person possesses his own exemplar, but that nobody knows whether other people also have this or something else. The assumption would thus be possible, though unverifiable, that one section of mankind had one sensation of red and another section another. What am I to say about the word red? That it means something con confronting us all? And that everyone should really have another word besides this one to mean his own sensation of red? Or is it like this? The word red means something known to everyone. And in addition, for each person, it means something known only to him. Or perhaps, rather, it refers to something known only to him. Of course, saying that the word red refers to, instead of means, 
something private does not help us in the latest or the least to grasp its function, but it is the more psychologically apt expression for a particular experience in doing philosophy. It is as if when I uttered the word, I cast a sidelong glance at the private sensation, as if it were in order to say to myself, I know all right what I mean by it. Look at the blue sky and say to yourself, how blue the sky is. When you do it spontaneously without philosophical intentions, the idea never crosses your mind that this impression of color belongs only to you. And you have no hesitation in exclaiming that to someone else. And if you point at anything as you say the words that uh, you point at the sky, I am saying you have not the feeling of pointing into yourself, which often accompanies naming the sensation when one is thinking about private language. Nor do you think that really you ought to not point to the color with your hand, but with your attention? Consider what it means to point to something with attention. But don't we at least mean something quite de uh, definite when we look at a color in a name or color impression? It is as if we detach the color impression from the object, like a membrane. This ought to arouse our suspicions. But how is it even possible for us to be tempted to even think that we use a word to mean at one time the color known to everyone and at another the visual impression which I am getting now? How can there be so much as temptation here? I don't turn the same kind of attention on the color in the two cases. When I mean the color impression that, as I should like to say, belongs to me alone, I immerse myself in the color, rather like when I cannot get my fill of a color. Hence, it is easy to produce this experience when one is looking at a bright color or at an impressive color scheme. I know how the color green looks to me. Surely that makes sense. Certainly. What use of a proposition are you thinking of? Imagine someone saying, but I know how tall I am, and laying his hand on top of his head to prove it. <laughs> someone paints a picture in order to show how he imagines a theater scene. And now I say, this picture is a double function. It informs others as pictures or words inform. But for the one who gives the information, it is a representation or piece of information of another kind. For him, it is the picture of this image, as it cannot be for anyone else. To him, his private impression of the picture means that he has imagined in the sense which the picture cannot mean to this to others. And what right have I to speak in this second case of a representation or piece of information? If these words were rightly used in the first case, but doesn't what you say come to this, that there is no pain, for example, without pain behavior? It comes to this only if a living human being and what resembles behaves like a living human being. One can say, it has sensations, it sees, it's blind, it hears, is deaf, is conscious or unconscious. But in a fairy tale, the pot too can see and hear, certainly, but it can also talk. But the fairy tale only invents what is not the case. It does not talk nonsense. It is not as simple as that. Is it false or nonsensical to say that pots talk? Have we a clear picture of the circumstances in which we should say of a pot that it talked? Even a nonsense poem is not nonsense in the same way as a babbling child, as the babbling of a child. We do indeed say of an inanimate thing that it is in pain when playing with dolls, for example. But this use of the concept of pain is a secondary one. Imagine a case in which people ascribe pain only to in inanimate things. Pitied only dolls. When children play at trains, their game is connected with their knowledge of trains. 
it would nevertheless be possible for the children of a tribe unacquainted with trains to learn this game from others and play it without knowing that it was copied from anything. One might say that the game did not make the same sense to them as to us. What gives us so much of an idea that living beings, things, can feel is that my education has led me or led me to it by drawing my attention to feelings in myself. And now I transfer the idea to objects outside of myself that I recognize that there is something there in me which I can call pain without getting into conflict with the way other people use the word. I do not transfer my idea to some stones, plants, etc. Couldn't I imagine having frightful pains and turning to stone while they lasted? Well, how do I know, if I shut my eyes, whether I have not turned into stone? And, if that has happened, in what sense will the stone have the pains? In what sense would they be ascribable to the stone? Only of what behaves like a human being can one say that it is pains. For one has to say it of a body, or if you like, of a soul, which somebody has. And how can a body have a soul? Look at a stone and imagine it having sensations. One says to oneself, how could one so much as get the idea of scribbling a sensation to a thing? Or ascribing a sensation to a thing. One might as well ascribe it to a number. And now look at a wriggling fly. And at once these difficulties vanish. And pain seems to be able to get a foothold here, where before everything was, so to speak, too smooth for it. And so too a corpse seems to us quite inaccessible to pain. Our attitude is what is alive and to what is dead is not the same. All out reactions are different. If anyone says, that cannot simply come from the fact that a living thing moves about in, about in such and such a way, and a dead one, not. I want to uh, intimate to him that this is a case of the transition from quantity to quality. Think of recognition of facial expressions, or of the description of facial expressions, which does not consist in giving the measurement of the face. Think, too, how one can imitate a man's face without seeing one's own in a mirror. But isn't it absurd to say that a body, of a body, that it has pain? And why does one feel an absurdity in that? In one sense, is it true that my hand does not feel pain, but in my hand, but I in my hand? What sort of issue is this? Or what sort of issue is? Is it the body that feels pain? How is it to be decided? What makes it plausible to say that it is not the body? Well, something like this. If someone has a pain in his hand, then the hand does not say so, unless it writes it. And what does not confront the hand, but the sufferer, the one, or one looks into his face. How am I filled with pity for this man? How does it come out, come out what the object of my pity is? Pity, one may say, is a form of conviction that someone else is in pain. I turn to stone, and my pain goes on. Suppose I were in error, and it was just, and it was no longer pain. But I can't be in error here. It means nothing to doubt whether I am in pain. That means if anyone said, I do not know if what I have got is a pain or something else. We should think something like, he does not know what the English word pain means, and we should explain it to him. How? Perhaps by means of gestures, or by pr pricking him with a pin and saying, see, that's what pain is. This explanation, like any other, he might understand right, wrong, or not at all.
And he will show what she does not, or what she does by his use of the word in this as in other cases. If he now said, for example, oh, I know what a pain means. What I don't know is whether this that I have now is pain. We should merely shake our heads and be forced to regard his words as odd reaction, which we have no idea what to do with. It would be rather as if we heard some someone say seriously, I distinctly remember that time before I was born, I believed. That expression of doubt has no place in the language game. But if we cut out human behavior, which is the expression of sensation, it looks as if I might legitimately begin to doubt afresh. My temptation to say that one might take a sensation for something other than what it is arises from this. If I assume the abrogation of the normal language game with the expression of a sensation, I need a criterion of identity for the sensation, and then the possibility of error also exists. When I say I am in pain, I am at any rate justified before myself. What does, this, what does that mean? Does it mean if someone else could know what I am calling pain? He would admit that I was using the word correctly. To use a word without justification does not mean to use it without right. What I do is not, of course, to identify my sensation by criteria, but to repeat an expression. But this is not the end of the language game. It is the beginning. But isn't the beginning the sensation which I describe? Perhaps the word describe tricks us here. I say I describe my state of mind and I describe my room. You need to call to mind the differences between the language games. What we call descriptions are instruments for particular uses. Think of machine drawing a cross-section and elevation with measurements which an engineer has before him. Thinking of description as a word picture of the facts has something misleading about it. One tends to think only of such pictures as hang on our walls, which seem simply to portray how a thing looks, what it is like. These pictures are, as it were, idle. Don't always think that you read off what you say from the facts, that you portray these in words according to rules. For even so, you would have to apply the rule in a particular case without guidance. If I say to myself, or of myself, that it is only from my own case that I know the word pain means, must I not say the same of other people too? And how can I generalize the one case so irresponsibly? Now someone tells me that he knows what pain is only from his own case. Suppose everyone had a box with something in it. We call it a beetle. No one can look into the everyone else's box, and everyone says he knows what a beetle is only by looking at his beetle. Here it would be quite possible for everyone to have something different in his box. One might even imagine such a thing constantly changing. But suppose the word beetle had a use in these people's language. If so, it would not be used as the same as the name of the thing. The thing in the box has no place in the language game at all, not even as something for the box uh, might even be empty. No, one can divide through by the thing in the box. It cancels out, whatever it is. That is to say, if we construe the grammar of the expression of sensation on the model of object and designation, the object drops out of consideration as irrelevant. If you say he sees a private picture before him, which he is describing, you have still made an assumption about what he is before him, and that means that you can describe it or do describe it more closely. If you admit that you haven't had or you haven't any notion of what kind of thing it might be that he has before him, then what leads you into saying, in spite of that, that he has something before him? 
Isn't it as if I were to say of someone, he has something, but I don't know whether it is money or debts or empty till, or an empty till. I know only from my own case. What kind of pro proposition is this meant to be at all? An experiential one? No, a grammatical one? Suppose everyone does say about himself that he knows what pain is only from his own pain. Not that people really say that or even prepared to say it, but if everybody said it, it might be a kind of exclamation. And even if it gives no information, still it is a picture, and why should we not want to call up such a picture? Imagine an, alle an, an allegorical painting taking in the place of those words. When we look into ourselves, as we do philosophy, we often get to see such, just such a picture, a full-blown pictorial representation of our grammar. Not facts, but as it were illustrated, turns of speech. Yes, but there is something there all the same accompanying my cry of pain, and it is on account of that that I utter it. And this something is what is important and frightful. Only whom are we informing of this, and on what occasion? Of course, if water boils in a pot, steam comes out of the pot, and also pictured steam comes out of the pictured pot. But what if one insisted on saying that there also must be something boiling in the picture of the pot? The fact that we should so much like to say this is an important thing, while we point privately to the sensation, is enough to show how much we are inclined to say something which gives no information. Being unable, when we surrender ourselves to philosophical thought, to help saying such and such, being irres irresistibly inclined to say it, does not mean being forced into an assumption or having an immediate perception or knowledge of a state of affairs. It is, we should like to say, not merely the picture of the behavior that plays a part in the language game with the words, he is in pain, but also the picture of the pain, or not merely the paradigm of the behavior, but also that of the pain. It is a misunderstanding to say the picture of pain enters into the language game with the word pain. The image of pain is not a picture and this image is not replaceable in the language game by anything that we should call a picture. The image of pain certainly enters into the language game in a sense, only not as a picture. An image is not a picture, but a picture can correspond to it. If one has, no, if one has to imagine someone else's pain on the model of his, one's own, this is none too easy a thing to do. For I have to imagine pain which I do not feel on the model of, the, of pain which I do feel. That is, what I have to do is not simply to make a transition uh, in imagination from one place of pain to another, as from pain in the hand to pain in the arm. For I am not to imagine that I feel pain in some region of, of his body, which would also be possible. Pain behavior can point to a painful place, but the subject of pain is the person who gives it expression. I can only believe that someone else is in pain, but I, didn't, I, but I know it if I am. Yes, one can make the decision to say, I believe he is in pain, instead of he is in pain, but that is all. What looks like an explanation here, or like a statement about a mental process, is the true truth and exchange of one expression or for another, which we are doing in philosophy, seems the more appropriate one. Just try, in a real case, to doubt someone else's fear of pain. But you will surely admit that there is a difference between pain behavior accompanied by pain and pain behavior without any pain, admit it? What greater difference could there be? And yet you again and again reach the conclusion the, that the sensation itself is a nothing, 
Not at all. It is not a something, but not a nothing either. Uh, the conclusion was only that nothing would serve just as well as a something about which nothing could be said. We have only rejected the grammar which tries to force itself on us here. The paradox disappears only if we make a radical break with the idea that language always functions in one way, always serves some purpose, or some same purpose, to convey thoughts which may be about houses, pains, good and evil, or anything else you please. But you surely cannot deny that, for example, in remembering an inner process takes place, what gives the impression that we want to deny anything. When one says, still, an inner process does take place here, one wants to go on. After all, you see it, and it is this inner process that one means by the word remembering. The impression that we wanted to deny something arises from our setting our faces against the picture of the inner process. What we deny is that the picture of the inner process gives us the correct idea of the use of the word to remember. We say that this picture, with its ramifications, stands in the way of our seeing the use of the word as it is. Why should I deny that there is a mental process? But there has just taken place in me the mental process of remembering. Means nothing more than I have just remembered. To deny the mental process would mean to deny the, rem the remembering. Deny that anyone ever remembers anything. Are you not really a behaviorist in disguise? Are you at the bottom really saying that everything except human behavior is a fiction? If I do speak of a fiction, then it is of a grammatical fiction. How does the f philosophical problem about mental processes and states about behaviorism arise? The first step is at one that altogether escapes notice. We talk of processes and states and leave their nature undecided. Sometime, perhaps, we shall know more about them, we think. But that is just what commits us to a particular way of looking at the matter. But we have a definite concept of what it means to learn and to know a process better. The decisive movement in the conjuring trick has been made, and it was the very one that we thought quite innocent. And now the analogy, which was to make us understand our thoughts, falls to pieces. So we have to deny and yet un uncomprehended process and yet unexplored medium. And now it looks as if we denied the mental processes. And naturally, we don't want to deny them. What is your aim in philosophy? To show the fly the way out of the fly bottle. If I tell someone I am in pain, his attitude to me will then be that of belief, disbelief, suspicion, and so on. Let's assume he says, it's not that bad. Doesn't that prove that he believes in something behind the outward expression of pain? His attitude is proof of his attitude. Imagine not merely the words, I am in pain, but also the answer, it's not so bad, replaced by instinctive noises and gestures. What difference could be greater? And in case of pain, I believe that I can give myself a private exhibition in the difference, but I can give anyone an exhibition of the difference between a broken and unbroken tooth. But for the private exhibition, if you don't have to give yourself actual pain, is it enough to imagine it? For instance, you screw up your face a bit. And do you know what, if you are giving yourself this exhibition of is pain and not? For example, a facial expression. And how do you know what you are to give yourself an exhibition of before you do it? This private exhibition is an illusion. But again, aren't the cases of the tooth and the pain similar? For the visual sensation in the one corresponds to the sensation of the pain in the other. I can exhibit the visual sensation of myself as well as the sensation of pain. 
Let us imagine the following. The surfaces of the things around us, stones, plants, etc., have patches and regions which produce pain in our skin when we touch them, perhaps through the chemical composition of these surfaces, but we need not know that. In particular case, we should speak of pain patches on the leaf of a particular plant, just as the present we speak of red patches. I'm supposing that it is useful to us to notice these patches in their shapes, that we can infer important properties of the objects from them. I can exhibit pain as I exhibit red, and as I exhibit straight and crooked in, tre crooked in trees and stones. That is what we call exhibiting. It shows a fundamental misunderstanding. If I am inclined to study the headache I have now in order to get clear about the philosophical problem of sensation, could someone understand the word pain who had never felt pain? Is experience to teach me whether this is so or not? And if we say a man could not imagine pain without having some time felt it, how do we know? How can it be decided whether it is true? In order to get clear about the meaning of the word think, we watch ourselves while we think. What we observe will be what the word means. This concept is not used like that. It would be as if, without knowing how to play chess, I were to try and make out what the word mate meant by a close observation of the last move of some game of chess. Misleading, par parallel, to the expression of pain is a cry, the expression of thought or proposition. As if the proposition of, or the purpose of the proposition were to convey to one person how it is with another, only so to speak in his thinking part and not his stomach. Suppose we think while we talk or write, I mean, we, can, we normally do, we shall not in a general say that we think quicker than we talk. The thought seems not to be separate from the expression. On the other hand, however, one does speak of speed of thought, of how a thought goes through one's head like a lightning, how problems become clear to us in a flash, and so on. So it is natural to ask if the same thing happens in lightning, like thought, only extremely accelerated as when we talk and think while we talk. So that is in the first case of the clockwork. The case of clockwork runs down all at once. But in the second, it breaks by the words. I can see or understand a whole thought in a flash exactly in a sense, which I can make note of in a few words or a few pencil dashes. What makes this note into an epitome of his thought? The light, lightning-like thought may be connected with the spoken thought, as the algebraic formula is with the sequence of numbers, which I work out from it. But, for example, I have given the algebraic function, I am certain that I shall be able to work out its values for the arguments 1, 2, 3, up to 10. This certainly would be called well-founded, for I have learned to compute such functions, and so on. In other cases, no reason will be given for it, but it will be justified by success. What happens when a man suddenly understands? The question is badly framed. If It is the question about the meaning of the expression sudden understanding. The question is not to point to a process we give the name to. The question means, or might mean, what are the tokens of sudden understanding? What are its characteristic uh, psychical, psych psychical accompaniments? There is no ground for assuming that a man feels a facial movement that go with his expression. For example, or the 
altercations in his breathing that are characteristic of some emotion. Even if he feels them as soon as his attention is directed towards them. Pa posture. The question, what the expression means, is not answered by such a description. And this means, misleads us into concluding that understanding is a specific, undefinable experience. But we forget that what should interest us is the question, how do we compare these experiences? What criteria of identity do we fix for their occurrence? Now I know how to go on is an exclamation. It corresponds to the indistinctive sound, uh, a glance start, or a glad start. Of course, it does not follow uh, from my feelings that I shall not find that I am st stuck when I do try to go on. Here there are cases in which one should say, uh, when I said I knew how to go on, I did know. One will say that if, for example, an unforeseen interruption occurs, but what is, an, but what is unforeseen must not simply be that I get stuck. We could also imagine a case in which light was always seeming to dawn on someone. He explains, now I have it, and can never justify himself in practice. It might seem to him that in the twinkling of an eye, he forgot again the meaning of the picture that occurred to him. Would it be correct to say that it is a matter of in induction, and that I am certain that I shall be able to continue um, the series as I am? This book will drop on the ground when I let it go, and that I should be no less astonished if I suddenly, and for no obvious reason, got stuck in the working of a tree, or of a series, and I should be if the book remained hanging in the air instead of falling. To that I would reply that we don't need any grounds for this certainty either, which should justify the certainty better than success. The certainty that I shall be able to go on after I have had this experience, seeing the formula, for instance, is simply based on induction. What does this mean? A certainty that the fire will burn me is based on induction. Does that mean I will argue to myself, fires always burn me, so it will happen now too? Or is the previous experience the cause of my certainty? not its ground. Whether the earlier experience is the cause of certainty depends on systems of hypothesis of natural laws in which we are considering the phenomenon of certainty. Is our confidence justified? What people accept as justification is shown by how they think and live? We expect this and are surprised at that, but the chain of reasons has to end. Can one think without speaking? And what is thinking? Well, don't you ever think? Can't you observe yourself and see what is going on? should be quite simple. You don't have to wait for it, as for an astronomical event that perhaps make your observation in a hurry. Well, what does one include in thinking? One ha what has one learned to use the word for? If I say that I have thought, need I always be right? What kind of mistake is there room for here? Are there circumstances in which one would ask, was what I was doing then really thinking? Am I not making a mistake? Suppose someone takes a measurement in the middle of a train of thought. He has interrupted the thought if he says nothing to himself during the measuring. When I think in language, there aren't any meanings going through my mind. In addition to the verbal expressions, the language is itself the vehicle of thought. Is thinking a kind of speaking? One would like to say it is what distinguishes speech with thought from talking without thinking. And so it seems to be an accomplishment of speech, a process which may accompany something else or can go by itself. Y say, yes, this pen is blunt. Oh, well, it'll do. 
First thinking it, then without thought, then just think the thought without the words. Well, while doing some writing, I might test the point of my pen, make a face, and then go on with a gesture of resignation. Might also act in such a way while taking various measurements that an onlooker would say I had without words thought. If two magnitudes are equal to a third, they are equal to one another. But what constitutes thought here is not some mere process, which has to accompany the words if they are not to be spoken without thought. Imagine people who could only think aloud, as there are people who can only read aloud, while we sometimes call it thinking, to accompany a sentence by a, a mental process, um, that accompaniment is not what we mean by a thought. Say a sentence and think it. Say it with understanding. And now do not say it. And just do what you accompanied uh, it with when you said it with understanding. Sing the tune with expression. And now don't sing it, but repeat the expression. And here one actually might repeat something. For example, motions of the body, slower and faster breathing, and so on. Only someone who is convinced can say that. How does the conviction help him, help him when he sees it? It is somewhere at hand by the side of the spoken expression. Or is it masked by it, of a sudden sound of a loud one, uh, sound by a loud one, or that it can, as it were, no longer be heard when one expresses it aloud? What if someone were to say, in order to be able to sing in a tune from memory, one has to hear it in one's mind and sing from that? So you really wanted to say, we use this phrase in order to lead someone from one form of expression to another. One is tempted to use the following picture. What he really wanted to say, what he meant was already present somewhere in his mind, even before he gave it expression. Various kinds of thing may persuade us to give up one expression and adopt another in its place. To understand this, it is useful to consider the relation in which the solutions of mathematical problems stand in the context and ground of their formulation. The concept trisection of the angle with ruler and compass when people are trying to do it, and on the other hand, when it is proved that there is no such thing. What happens when we make an effort, say in writing a letter, to find the right expression for our thoughts? This phrase compares to the process of one translating or describing um, the thoughts are already there, perhaps were there in advance, and we merely look for their expression. This picture is more or less appropriate in different cases, but can all sorts of things happen here? I surrender to a mood, and then the expression comes. Or a picture occurs to me, and I describe it, or I try to describe it, or an old English expression occurs to me, and I try to hit it uh, on the corresponding German one. Or I make a gesture... And ask myself, what words correspond to this gesture? And so on. Now, if it were asked, do you have the thought before finding the expression? What would one have to reply? And what? And to the question, what did the thought consist in? Is it excited before its expression, or existed before its expression? This case is similar to the one in which someone imagines that one could not think a sentence with the remarkable word order of German or Latin just as it stands. One first has to think it, and then one arranges the words in that odd order. A French politician once wrote that it was a, peculiar, a peculiarity of the French language that it is in words, that in it words occur in the order in which one thinks them. But 
didn't I already intend the whole construction of the sentence? For example, at its beginning? So surely it already existed in my mind before I said it out loud. If it was in my mind, still it would, be norm it would not normally be there in some different word order. But here we are constructing a misleading picture of intending, that is, of the use of this word. An intention is embedded in its situation, in human customs and in institutions. If the technique of the game of chess did not exist, I could not intend to play a game of chess. Insofar, I do not intend the construction of a sentence in advance that is made possible by the fact that I can speak the language in question. After all, one can only say that something uh, if one has learned to talk. Therefore, in order to want something, one must also have mastered a language. And yet, it is clear that one can want to speak without speaking, just as one can want to dance without dancing. And we can think about it, we grasp at the image of dancing, speaking, etc. Thinking is not an incorporeal process which lends life and sense to speaking, and which it would be possible to detach from speaking rather than as the devil took the shadow of uh, Schlemiel from the ground, but how not an incorporeal process? Am I acquainted with the incorporeal process that there or process then, only thinking is not one of them? No, I called the expression an incorporeal process to aid in my embarrassment. Well, I was trying to explain the meaning of the word thinking in a primitive way. One might say thinking is an incorporeal process. However, if one were using this to distinguish the grammar of the word think from that of, let's say, the word eat, only that makes the difference between uh, meanings look too slight. Is in saying the numerals are actual and numerals are actual and numbers are non-actual objects. An unsuitable type of expression is a sure means of remaining in a state of confusion. It is as were the bars the way out. Or the yeah. One cannot guess how a word functions. One has to look at it, its use and learn from that. But the difficulty is to remove the prejudice which stands in the way of doing it. It is not the stupid is not a stupid prejudice. Speech with and without thought is to be compared with the playing of a piece of music with and without thought. William James, in order to show that the thought is possible without speech, quotes the recollection of a deaf mute, Mr. Ballard, who wrote that in his early youth, even before he could speak, he had thoughts about God and the world. What he can have, what can he have meant? Ballard writes, it was during those delightful rides, some three, two or three years before my initiation, into the rudiments of written language that I began to ask myself the question, how came the world into being? Are you sure one would like to ask? That is, uh, that is this is the correct translation of your wordless thought into words. And why does this question, which otherwise seems not to exist, raise its head here? Do I want to say that this the writer's memory deceives him? I don't even know if I should say that. These recollections are a queer memory phenomenon, and I do not know what conclusions one can draw from them about the past of a man who recounts them. The words with which I express my memory are my memory reaction. Would it be imaginable that people should never speak in an audible language, but should still say things to themselves in the imagination? If people always said things only to themselves, then they would merely be doing always what, what as is they do sometimes. So it is quite easy to imagine 
uh, this, one need only make the easy transition I sum to all, like an inde infinitely long row of trees is simply one that does not come to an end. Our criterion for someone saying something to himself is what he tells us and the rest of the behavior, and we only say to someone that someone speaks to himself in the ordinary sense of the words he can speak. And we do not say it in the parrot nor in the gramophone. What sometimes happens might always happen. What kind of proposition is that? It is like the following. If big F to A uh, makes sense, then, or parentheses A, makes sense to uh, parentheses X dot big F, or capital F, parentheses X makes sense. If it is possible for someone to make a false move in some game, then it might be possible for everybody to make nothing but false moves in every game. Thus, we are under the temptation to misunderstand the logic of our expression here. To give an incorrect account of the use of words, um, our words, or use of our words, um, orders are sometimes not obeyed. But what, it would be, what would it be like if no orders were ever obeyed? The concept order would have lost its purpose. But couldn't we imagine God suddenly giving a parrot understanding and now saying things to itself? But here it is an important fact that I imagined a deity in order to come to myself. Um, but at least I know from my own case what it means to say things to oneself. Now, if I were deprived of the uh, organs of speech, I could still talk to myself. If I know it only from my own case, and then I only know what I, what I call that, not what anyone else does. These deaf-mutes have learned only a gesture language, but each of them talks to himself inwardly in a vocal language. Now, don't you understand that? But how do I know whether I understand it? What can I do with this information if it is such? The whole idea of understanding smells fishy here. I do not know whether I am to say I understand it or don't understand it. Might answer, I might answer it's an English sentence, apparently, quite in order, and that is, until one wants to do something with it, it has a connection with the other sentences, which makes it difficult for us to say that nobody really knows if it uh, knows what it tells us, but everyone who has not be, uh, become clouds by doing philosophy notice that there is something wrong here. But this uh, s supposition surely makes good sense. Yes, in ordinary circumstances, these words in this picture have an application with which we are familiar. But if we suppose in a case in which this application falls away, we become as if it were conscious for the first time of the nakedness of the words in the picture. But I suppose that someone has pain, and I am simply supposing that he is just the same as I have so often had that gets us no further. It is as if I were to say, you surely know what it is five o'clock here means, so you know that there of what five o'clock on the sun means. It simply means that there is just the same time when there is, it is here as when it is five o'clock. The explanation by means of identity does not work here. For I know well enough that one cannot call five o'clock here and five o'clock there. The same time, or the, yeah, the same time, but what I do know is that in what cases one is to speak of its being the same time here and there. In exactly the same way, it is no explanation to say the supposition that he has a pain is simply the supposition that he has the same as I. For that part of the grammar is quite clear to me. That is, that one will say that the stove has the same experience as I if one says it is in the pain and I am in the pain.
Yeah, here we go, and wanting to say pain is pain, whether he has it or I have it. And however, I come to know whether he has a pain or not. I might agree. And when you ask me, don't you know? Then what I mean when I say that uh, the stove is in pain, I can reply. These words may lead me to have all sorts of images, but their usefulness goes no further. I am also to imagine something in connection with the words. It was just five o'clock in the afternoon on the sun such as the grandfather clock, which points to five. But a still better example would be that of the application of above and below to the earth. Here we have quite the clear idea of what above and below mean. I can see well enough that I am on top and the earth is surely beneath me. And I don't smile at this example. We are indeed all taught at school that it's stupid to talk like that, but it is much easier to bury a problem than to solve it. And it is only a reflection that shows us that in this case, above and below cannot be used in the ordinary way. That we might, for instance, say that there's people at the antipodes are below our part of the earth, but it also be recognized as right now for them to use the expression about us. Here it happens that all our thinking plays us a weird trick. We want that is to quote the law of excluded middle and to say either such an image is in his mind, or it is not. There is no third possibility. We encounter this odd argument also in other regions of philosophy in the decimal expansion of, of pi. Neither the group uh, 7777 occurs, or it does not. There is no third possibility. That is to say, God sees, but we don't know. But what does that mean? We use a picture in the picture of a visible series, which one person sees the whole and another not. The law of excluded middle says here it must either look like this or like that. So it really, this is a truism, says nothing at all, but gives us a picture. And the problem ought to be, does reality accord with the picture or not? And this picture seems to determine what we have to do, and what to look for, and how, but it does not do so, just because we do not know how it is to be applied. Here, saying there is no third possibility, or, but there can be, can't be a third possibility, express our inability to turn our eyes away from this picture, a picture which looks as if it has already contained both the problem and the solution, while all the time we feel that it is not so. Similarly, when it is said either he has this experience or not, what primarily occurs to us is a picture which by itself seems to make the sense of the expression unmistakable. Now you know what it is in question, we should like to say, and that's precisely what it does not tell him. And sort of at the end of that, I almost feel like it poses more questions than we've actually answered. So, you know, now I feel like now he's sort of like set the groundwork for, you know, some of the even real deeper questions and points he's trying to get to. And uh, I guess that's what we'll tackle in part four uh, whenever I get around to it. But, you know, just kind of going through this again myself, it's been this sort of re... I guess re reanalysis, relook at my of, of of my entirety of of progression intellectually and just even my life in general and how I view experience, what those experiences have meant to me, meant to me, you know how you know egocentric we can be by thinking our reality is the only reality, and you know even when carrying compassion, it's like how much do we really try to look at this someone else's perspective, and really what does that even mean? Because you know. <laughs> we words objects they're they're just symbols and those symbols have no meaning until 
your language applies and meaning to it. Like, as I've said, you know, a million freaking times, I don't know on how many podcasts, how many conversations, but, you know, let's say somebody's been beaten their entire life and, like, they finally gained their freedom at 18 and the first thing they see is an apple, then apples will probably represent freedom and just hope for them the rest of their life. Whereas somebody saw an apple, you know, uh, every day, you know, getting sold into, like, sex slavery. I know it's an extreme case. And then finally, you know, they, they, they were granted freedom. Then anytime they saw an apple, they would, it would immediately trigger their, their nervous system. They would go into trauma. They would, they would want to flee or freeze. And so that, that anytime they'd see an apple would be like a, a, a immediate reminder of, you know, prison of, of just the horrors. So it's like, I think we sometimes forget that when we get all worked up about something and someone else doesn't, that we're, we're arrogant enough to think that, like, how could you not be so upset? Or even vice versa. It's like, why are they pissed off? It's like, that, it's nothing. And, I, you know, we, we're so focused on, you know, someone should be offended or not be offended that we just forget to ask each other, hey, what does that actually mean to you? And that's, that's important. I mean, I, we're, we're, not, we're not asking the right questions. We take a lot of things on assumption. And assumption's always going to to cause cause some conflict because you know we're going to get super offended because we're again we're going to assume that person uh is doing that action in, in in with the knowledge of how much it affects us in one way or the other and that's kind of a it's really arrogant when you think about it and egocentric but it's uh one of humanity's greatest follies and but it's one of us but thank you for joining us so far on the the adventures through Wittgenstein and I'll try to get on to part four because it's, I mean, it's been intense, but I, I feel like it's about to really heat up. So, so I'm trying to even remember. I've read this before, but it's like, it's almost like not even reading the same book now because of how much more I've read and progressed. So thank you for still being on the journey.